0: Well, if you would, take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible and need to use one, there should be a black, hardbound Bible somewhere around you. And Acts chapter 2 begins on page 909 of that Bible. As you're turning there, I know uh, uh, this Tuesday many youngsters in costumes may come to your door seeking candy tricks or treats. I encourage you to give them treats. Uh, But it is an opportunity, whatever it is. I mean, obviously, we do not celebrate uh, any pagan portion of anything as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. However, it is an opportunity where literally your neighborhood comes to your door. That happens at no other time during the year, an opportunity for you to show kindness to children and to parents. And so, I hope that you will… Take advantage of that opportunity as it comes. We are almost through with our series on the storyline of the Bible, From Garden to Glory. These last few weeks, we have been at the peak of Revelation, the peak of the Bible, the the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, at the beginning of the book of Acts, the Lord Jesus ascends into heaven… And He tells His disciples that they will receive power to be His witnesses, power that will come when the Holy Spirit comes. And so Christ has ascended into heaven, and here in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God comes. Now, we're only going to read the first 13 verses, but our scope is going to actually be chapters 2, 3, and 4, to see what it is that the Spirit begins to do in these believers. Today is not a complete doctrine of the Holy Spirit. That would take far too long. We're not going to talk about so much how the Spirit is the one who carried along the authors of the Bible uh, to write the Scripture, or how uh, the Spirit is the one actually who awakens life in us, who is at work in us, who brings the gospel to bear on our souls so that we turn from sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and a whole host of other things that we could talk about regarding the Spirit of God. What we're going to focus in on is His coming and the initial impact, what it is that is, needs to happen as a result of the Spirit coming, all right? Acts chapter 2, I'm going to read the first 13 verses, Acts 2 verse 1. But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine." Let's pray together. Our Father, these are Your words given by the inspiration of Your Spirit. And we ask this morning that Your Spirit would come and shine a light of understanding on these words, that we, that we would understand them, that you would work in our hearts by your Spirit so that we love what you say, so that we are equipped to live for you, that we as your people might glorify your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do that work today by your Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. When I, was, uh, when I was a hospice chaplain, I learned a lot about how people approach their own death. Uh, one of the things that was interesting to see was that the patient was actually far less disturbed by the prospect of death than all of the family around that patient. And very often, the, the patient would Try to help His family to cope with what's coming, to comfort them, to encourage them not to worry, to talk to them about practicalities of what they need to do once He's gone, these kinds of things. And when you get to the end of Jesus' life, you actually see that He does that sort of thing with His disciples. After telling them that He's going to go away, He says to them in John chapter 14, "...let not your hearts..." Be troubled. And then from John 14 to chapter 16, He speaks to them and teaches them and seeks to prepare them for the day that He will no longer physically be among them. And among all of this teaching, something comes to the forefront. There is a promise that comes to the forefront, and it's the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth and a Helper who will dwell in them and teach them and remind them of what He had taught them and will empower them to be witnesses, to speak for Him. But we have to ask first, who is this Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit, you see, is not an impersonal force. This is not like Star Wars, you know, where Obi-Wan sits down and explains the force to Luke. Luke this kind of impersonal thing that governs everything in the universe. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. The Holy Spirit is a person. The third person in the Trinity. Now if the word Trinity is new to you or unfamiliar, let me just explain. The word Trinity is actually not in the Bible, but it's a it's a word that summarizes the way that the Bible speaks to us about God, The Bible teaches us that there is one God, only one God, but this God exists and reveals Himself t- to us in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All three are equally God, and yet they are distinct. They have distinct roles, particularly when it comes to God's work of redemption. God the Father plans redemption. God the Son accomplishes redemption. God the Spirit applies redemption. Different roles, but yet all equally God. Now, you hear that, and you may understand each individual word, but when you string them together in sentences like that, it begins to baffle the mind, doesn't it? If it doesn't, you're not listening. <laughs> One God existing in three persons. But it is actually good and right that this baffles our mind because He's God. God baffles the mind. God is beyond our finite comprehension. You see, our capacity to comprehend what God says about Himself does, does not determine whether it's true or not. God doesn't call us to fully comprehend everything about Him, but to believe everything He said about Himself. And so we seek to understand, but we know that God dwells in unapproachable light. He is beyond our comprehension. And what He calls us to believe with regard to Himself is that He is one God who exists and reveals Himself to us In three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And here in John 14 to 16, God the Son, Jesus, is promising that God the Holy Spirit will come. And he says in John 16 what the Spirit will do. In all that he does, this is what he will do. He will glorify me. That's what Jesus says the Spirit will do. The Spirit will glorify the Son. The Spirit, it's, it's, it's like a, a spotlight in theater, okay? Spotlights are no good for themselves. Spotlights do not exist for themselves. Spotlights are there in order to show, to direct your attention one place or another, and in the same way that a spotlight would focus an audience's eyes on a particular character in a show, the Holy Spirit is meant to focus, He loves to focus our eyes on one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says that is why He is going to come. In all the teaching, in all the reminding, in all the empowering, in all the comforting, in all the helping, this is the end goal. He will glorify me. And so, in the book of Acts, when the Spirit comes, He comes to glorify Jesus, but He comes to glorify Jesus through God's people. And that's what I want us to see this morning that God's Spirit empowers God's people to glorify Jesus. God's Spirit empowers God's people to glorify Jesus. And there are three distinct areas that I want us to see this in. First, God's Spirit empowers God's people to glorify Jesus in ministry, in ministry, particularly in word ministry. Now, as we read the first 13 verses of chapter 2, what we find here is a one-time, non-repeatable event, okay? Pentecost, the the Spirit does not come like this over and over and over and over again. This is a one-time event, the Spirit is sent to continue Jesus' work of building the kingdom of God. Many have said that rather than, you know, if you look up at, the, uh, at your headline, if your Bible has a headline for this whole book, it may say the Acts of the Apostles. It's been well said that it would be better labeled the Acts of the Holy Spirit because that is who is the power behind all that happens in the book of Acts. Behind the apostles stands God, the Holy Spirit. And one way, really, actually, just to think about the Holy Spirit is to think of Him as the extension of God's powerful, personal presence into His creation. The Holy Spirit is God Himself coming into His creation to do His work. And we see that kind of power here in Acts 2, don't we? I mean, the Holy Spirit comes and fills these people. And they're able to speak in languages they never knew before. They didn't take four, four years of, you know, um, Median or Elamite language. They, they didn't go off to, to college to study these things and get a degree in languages and then come back for Pentecost. The Holy Spirit inspired, it, it, it empowered them to speak in this way. It's an amazing power, isn't it? Let me just say, it's not a rhetorical question. It's an amazing power, isn't it? Yeah. And speaking in tongues like this is actually really important through the story of the book of Acts. Now, as the New Testament time progresses, as the early church time progresses, the presence of this speaking in tongues fades. It fades out. But it is very important. But what the, what the Spirit comes to do here in its most basic form is to empower people not to show off, but to say something. It's the speaking that matters. The tongues actually matter less. I mean, it would have just been this amazing show of nothingness if they just said, you know, if they just read the baseball, you know, stats in other languages, Right? Or maybe cricket in the Middle East. I don't know. But they would it would have been, it would have just been a show of show. But they didn't do this just to show. They did this actually to say something. To say something crucial. I want you to notice two things about the way, about what's happening as the Spirit empowers these people to speak. The first is think about who it is that the Spirit empowers to speak. Look at verse 4. And they were, what's the next word? All. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All. Now, in the Old Testament, the Spirit would work through kings. It would work through prophets. But here, the Spirit fills all believers so that all believers speak. Now, of course, there are, there are still those who are Particularly called and set apart and gifted for word ministry. And we don't diminish these roles, but the Holy Spirit empowers all Christians to speak. Do you know what that means? That means if you're a Christian, part of the Spirit's role in your life is to empower you to speak, to speak. Just keep your hand there and flip forward to Ephesians chapter 5. Or just jot down Ephesians 5, verses 18 to 20. If you're not sure how to navigate, that's on page 978 of that uh, Pew Bible. But listen to what Paul says to the Ephesians. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. What will that look like, Paul? What will it look like to be filled with the Spirit? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and also submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 21. Now, there's a parallel passage to this that we won't look at in Colossians 3, where instead of saying filled with the Spirit, Paul says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. But then the same outcome, words. He talks about addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs there as well. Being filled with the Spirit should produce a certain kind of Word in us. Teaching, from Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, teaching, admonishing, singing, giving thanks, addressing one another. And that is a ministry for us all. Not just for the pulpit, you understand. That's the ministry of the pew. It is to speak to one another. I mean... Think about about all the things that God commands us to do with one another. So many of them are with our mouths, are they not? Encourage one another, admonish one another, teach one another, counsel one another. And how do we do that? The Holy Spirit helps us. The Holy Spirit has been given so that we can do that so that we can speak. Now, look, all don't have a platform. All don't have a public ministry. All don't have a classroom. And yet, all speak. My guess is that if I were to ask to you to tell me someone who in your life has encouraged your Christian walk more than anyone else, a lot of your answers would have nothing to do with a pulpit or even a classroom. It would be an individual that just spent time with you and spoke into your life. Some of them, it's a parent, an uncle, a grandmother. That's the ministry we're all given, all speak. But then what is it that the Spirit empowers them to speak? Not just who does the Spirit empower to speak, but what is it that they speak? Verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, there are a lot of mighty works of God, aren't there? We've seen a lot of them. Creation, the exodus, the splitting of the Red Sea the splitting of the Jordan, the crumbling walls of Jericho. I mean, there are all kinds of mighty works of God. But if you imagine the mighty works of God as a mountain range, there is one mighty work of God that peaks higher than any other. It overshadows every other mighty work of God. And do you know what that is? It's the mountain of the gospel. Jesus' death for us and His resurrection. And it's this gospel that actually comes to the forefront as Peter steps forward to speak. You see, the same Spirit that in verse 4 gives them utterance, that word utterance in verse 4, is the same word in verse 14 when it says that Peter addressed them. That word is only used three times in the entire New Testament and twice right here when the Spirit comes. So that it, we're to draw that connection in our minds that the Spirit that has all these people speaking in all these languages to all these different people groups is the same Spirit that empowers this one man to speak one message to the entire crowd. and it focuses in on the gospel now we're not going to look at every line but i do want you to notice how it begins and how it ends because it begins by peter explaining that even though there are some folks mocking and saying these people are drunk he says no no no, they're not drunk this is actually what was prophesied in joel that god would pour out his spirit and this would happen but i don't want you to just see that god that he's explaining that God pours out His Spirit and sons and daughters prophesy and their visions and their dreams. There are these miraculous things that happen when the Spirit is poured out. What I want you to see is where He stops quoting Joel. Where does He stop? He starts with the explanation of, this is the Spirit of God that was promised. And He finishes by saying, verse 21... And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. (laughs) He wasn't just interested in rebutting the mockery. He wasn't just interested in telling them they don't know what they're talking about when they think these folks are drunk. He's saying, look, here's the explanation, but but let me tell you where that explanation leads us all, and it's here, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then he proceeds to tell you what the name of the Lord is. Look at the very next line in verse 22. Men of Israel hear these words. Jesus. And then in verse... Uh, 23, this Jesus. Verse 32, this Jesus. And then look at verse 36. Let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now connect those dots. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Know this, God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In other words, there is no calling on God to save you unless you call on Jesus Christ. He is the God who will save you. He is the one who has died. You put him to death, but God raised him from the dead. It's amazing how many times that's actually said. Not just here, but in, in, in the next chapter. You put him to death, God raised him from the dead. It's... Uh, He is the one who is Lord. He is Lord. I mean, Peter would have been the first one to sing that. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead. And he is Lord. And so the Spirit has come to empower this crowd to speak the mighty works of God. And then the Spirit empowers Peter to speak the gospel. A gospel that was not just for that crowd that day. A gospel that is for every crowd every day that Jesus Christ has died and been raised again and because he has been raised all who trust in him will receive forgiveness of their sins that his death is sufficient for our forgiveness and his righteousness given to us by faith is sufficient to make us right with God dear friend if you are not trusting in Jesus you are not right with God your religious efforts your philanthropy, your generosity toward others, you seeking to be a good uh, dad, a good mom, a good worker. These are all nice things, but none of them gain you ground with God. Only those who call on the name of the Lord are saved. Calling on Him for forgiveness, for mercy, for life. Friend, if that's you, there is nothing I would love to talk to you more about after this service than that. There's nothing every Christian in this room would love more than to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus and to be saved. So the crowd is filled with the Spirit, and they speak. Peter is filled with the Spirit, and he speaks. And the pattern just keeps going through the book of Acts. A couple of chapters later, Stephen... Is said to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does he do? He speaks. He preaches the gospel to those who are going to kill him. Philip is said to be filled with the gospel, filled with the Spirit. And 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 what does the Spirit do? Take takes him to meet with an Ethiopian eunuch. So he can do what? Speak. Barnabas is filled with the Spirit and Saul are filled with the Spirit. Saul is filled with the Spirit, and they are sent out together on mission. A mission to do what? To dig wells? No, to speak. Wells are fine and good. But without the gospel, who cares if you have clean water? Without the water that will actually wash your soul, if you're going to give somebody water, point them to the water. But that's the pattern over and over again. In fact, one of the ways that we can evaluate our lives to say, am I filled with the Spirit, is to examine whether our mouths are filled with words about the Lord and about Christ. Now, on a weekly basis, we have to talk about our work. We need to talk about, you know, we need to give directions to somebody. We need to talk about, you know, how to fix the leaky sink at home, all of these kinds of things. But, if we had a transcript of our words from this last week... Would we find words about Jesus and His love? Would we find that we spoke them to Christians in order to encourage them? Would we find that we spoke them to non-Christians? Would we find that particular evidence of the Spirit? God's Spirit empowers God's people to glorify Jesus in ministry, in word ministry in particular. Secondly, he empowers God's people to glorify him, glorify Jesus in the church. Once the Spirit comes, he gives birth to the church. Now, in chapter 2, verse 38, Peter says everybody who comes to faith in Jesus is going to receive the promise, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then what do these Spirit filled people do? Where do they go? Well, let's look. Let's begin reading in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who who believed were together and had all things in common." And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So once these 3,000 people come to Christ, where do they go? Well, it's anachronistic to say it, but they go to church. I mean, look at the beginning of verse 44 and all who believed were together. They don't just go back to life as it is, they don't just go along their merry way thinking, I've got the Holy Spirit. What else do I need? It's just Jesus and me. No, 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 no. They've been given the gift of the Spirit, and the Spirit actually brings them together. You now some would say, well, that was in that day. I mean, that was before live streams, for goodness sake. That was before I had podcasts I could listen to and and, and music on my phone or or, or whatever else we listen to music on. We don't have to gather today because, you know, we have all this technological advantage. Well, the Spirit didn't save us to act differently in an age of technological advance. God, the Spirit doesn't just bring us to Jesus. The Spirit actually brings us together as a family, as brothers and sisters. And the Spirit still gathers us in the local church today. I say local church because the Bible does speak about the universal church. In Matthew 16, you know, Jesus says, I will build my church. He's not talking about a particular local church or even every particular local church. He's talking about... All true believers of all time, in all places, universal. But the primary way the New Testament talks about church is actually to speak of the local church. A gathering of believers in a particular place, a particular city. And and, and the point here is that they gather. I mean, you go straight from 3,000 souls are added about that day. And then verse 42, what does it say? And they devoted who is the they? when you just say they I mean today you can walk up and say they anything you know you can go up to a pastor and said well they are not very happy about this and nobody knows who they is right you could go if you're a manager you know you could come up and say well they are not pleased about this new policy at work well who is they? you gotta know who they is before it matters who they is right they could be an invisible group. It's just a, they could just be me. <laughs> I'm not actually very happy about this policy or whatever it is. But here, the they in verse 42 refers back to verse 41 3,000 souls are saved. And what do they do? They're together. They're together to glorify Jesus. Notice the kinds of things that they do in verses 42 to 47. In verse 42, they are devoted to the apostles' teaching. Who is the focus of the apostles' teaching? Jesus. They're devoted to fellowship. Who is at the center of all Christian fellowship? Jesus. Who created it? Jesus. Who sustains it? Jesus. It says in verse 42, they're devoted to the, uh, the breaking of bread. Now there, it probably is a reference to the Lord's Supper. And who is it that we remember in the Lord's Supper? Jesus. But in verse 46, you find breaking bread again. But this time we're in homes and we're taking a meal together. It seems to point more to a general sense of breaking bread, uh, to hospitality. And who is it? Who is it that first opened up his home and invited us to his table? Jesus they're devoted to the prayers prayers made in the name of Jesus they're devoted to sacrificial giving they had they had everything in common people were selling their land selling their property in order to be able to give to other people who is it that is the example of such sacrificial giving Jesus the very heart and soul of the gathering is Jesus he they are glorifying him in doing all of these things. How can we, as a church, glorify Jesus? Well, here's a blueprint. It's not meant to tell us, hey, there was once a perfect church and no other church is perfect. That's not what Luke is doing here. This is to say, these are the kinds of things that the church ought to be doing. It's not a set of programs that are going to lead to glory for Jesus. You understand that? Oh, well... Now we have this. Now we're definitely going to be glorifying Jesus. You know. Uh, we do a wanna. Oh, we do a wana. Oh, uh, we do. We did a men's retreat. Now we're definitely glorifying Jesus. No, 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 no. Glorifying Jesus isn't about a particular set of programs. It's actually about a particular mindset. It's about a particular focus of the heart in the members of that church to be devoted to these kinds of things that's how we're gonna glorify Jesus guys that's how we do it so the Spirit brings the church together and works in churches to glorify Jesus we just voted last Sunday night to pursue planting a church in Bargersville. who's gonna do the work well Stephen's been doing work right and uh, other people are gonna join in the work but how is it that this church is going to be planted and is going to grow roots and is going to bear fruit and is going to give faithful testimony to Jesus and is going to glorify Jesus? How is that going to happen? The only way is by the power of the Holy Spirit. But just think, just think personally, when you got in the car this morning or any Sunday morning and you came to church, what, what was on your mind? What was your goal in coming? As we sang, what was your goal? Maybe you taught a Sunday school class. What was your goal? As you give online or in person, what's your goal? As you serve in kids' ministry, what's your goal? As you have chats before and after service, what's the goal? As you open up your home or invite people to go to lunch, what is the goal? Ah, well, the goal is to glorify Jesus. That's the goal. Why? Why? because that's the Holy Spirit's goal. And that Spirit should work in us to pursue that aim. So, in in ministry and in the church, God's Spirit empowers God's people to glorify Jesus. The third place is in opposition. In opposition. Opposition to the Christian faith and hatred for Christians is one of the key themes in the book of acts and it starts early now amid all these things that the church does if you look at chapter two verse forty three you'll see many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles Well, the opposition actually comes in response to one particular sign and wonder that is done by an apostle and that's in chapter three if you have a headline there it may say the lame beggar healed or something like that Peter and John are going to the temple to pray, and uh, Peter heals a man who is lame, who had first begged for money. He didn't have any. He heals him. This man gets up and starts jumping around and praising the Lord, and that draws a crowd, as it would. And Peter sees that crowd as an opportunity, and he preaches the gospel, and he says, he comes to, he talks about how they had denied the author of life. They had crucified Christ, and yet God had raised him from the dead. And then he comes to his, his call, as it were, in verse 17 of chapter 3. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of, the, of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, thus he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord." Now, a couple of things happen after Peter finishes that sermon. One is that 2,000 more people come to faith in Jesus. And the other is that the religious establishment is really angry. Chapter 4, verse 1, they were speaking, As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was evening. And on the next day, they bring them into the council and they question them. And actually, that's the first place that we see them glorify Jesus as they are empowered by the Holy Spirit is in the council. So, verse 4, they set them in the midst and they inquired, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Why is that phrase there? Filled with the Holy Spirit. Why is that so important? Well, let me tell you why it's important because only weeks earlier when Jesus put on trial, Peter was questioned about his association and his loyalty to Jesus, and he denied Jesus 3 times. And here he is getting ready to give an answer. Back then he was guilt-ridden. Luke 23 says he went out and wept bitterly after he denied Jesus 3 times. But there are no tears here in Acts chapter 4. He is ready to stand and he is ready to speak. He once refused even acknowledging Jesus, and now he refuses to shut up about Jesus. Why? Answer, filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the answer. That's why He can stand in front of them and say, Acts 4, 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And why He says in verse 19, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So the Spirit empowers them to glorify Jesus in the council, and then He empowers them to glorify Jesus after the council. You see, they, they are released, and they go rejoin the church, and they're all praying together, and they ask the Lord to take care of the opposition and give them boldness. Chapter 4, verse 29. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. The result, verse 31, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So the Spirit comes and empowers them to keep glorifying Jesus even though the opposition is not going to fade now that should encourage us shouldn't it shouldn't that encourage us look the opposition to the gospel the opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ the opposition to biblical morality the opposition to God himself is not cooling off it is heating up It's growing. It's growing in your workplaces. It's growing in your neighborhoods. It's growing in your family reunions. It's growing in the arena of education. It's growing everywhere. But the same Holy Spirit that shakes this prayer meeting and empowers these Christians to be bold in the face of opposition and to not give up their faith, will give us power if we ask remember what jesus said in luke eleven if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will the heavenly father give the holy spirit to those who ask him god's spirit empowers god's people to glorify jesus in word ministry in the church, and in the face of opposition. And so this doesn't just happen in these first few chapters of Acts. This keeps happening throughout the book of Acts. And it's been happening all throughout church history. And the question for you and the question for me is does your life reflect the presence of this Spirit? Are you glorifying Jesus in what you say? Are you glorifying Jesus in how you speak His Word? Is your mouth more full of political banter than it is gospel sharing and encouragement? Is your mouth full of corrosive words about others and toward others, or is it full of words that give grace and build up? Are you glorifying Him in how you conduct yourself in the church, in relationships, in loving one another. Are you devoted to the apostles' teaching? Are you, divided to, are you devoted to meaningful fellowship with brothers and sisters? Are, are you devoted to prayer with one another, to hospitality, to generosity with those in need? And are you glorifying Jesus in the face of opposition when your co-worker or your old high school friend or your cousin or whoever it is speaks against the gospel are you just letting it go are you exploding with vehement anger and try to just scream at them till you think you can convince them or are you speaking with boldness and with gentleness the truth in response to opposition no matter what comes that is not an easy call because some of us will face very very challenging circumstances particularly in your workplaces we're standing for the gospel we're not being passive not being belligerent by any stretch but just being faithful in speaking and not being complicit in immorality just that stance in and of itself can jeopardize jobs, can jeopardize promotions. It is not an easy position, I think, that I am speaking of here. But I'm not trying to put us in this position. Jesus said, the the world will hate you because it first hated me. are you glorifying Jesus God empowers God's Spirit empowers God's people to glorify Jesus are you glorifying Jesus are you filled with the Spirit let's pray our Father we bow before you um, convicted by fear of man convicted about how we use our words, how we live in the church, how we think about and deal with opposition. Lord, we know that there is only one who faithfully did all three with no sin and with no fear. God, we pray that His Spirit would fill us, that we might speak faithfully for Him, for our Lord Jesus Christ that we might live faithfully in His church, and that we might persevere faithfully when opposition comes our way. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing two verses of a hymn, uh, and then we'll be dismissed.